Research from Mexico, a typical country in terms of consistent involvement historically from the bank and fund, shows that for every 2% decrease in GDP, the mortality rate increased by 1%. Now consider that as a result of structural adjustment, the GDP of dozens of countries in the third world between the 1960s and 1990s suffered double-digit contractions. Despite massive population growth, many of these economies stagnated or shrank over 15 to 25-year periods, meaning the bank and the fund's policies likely killed tens of millions of people. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this is the show where you're going to hear all about Bitcoin. You're going to learn everything there is to know. We're going to cover all of the best uh, articles, research, papers, everything. And that's what we're doing. We're going through a piece by Alex Gladstein. Um, and we will have a solo follow-up very soon. I do want to say... I do want to say sorry to everybody who downloaded yesterday's episode early or quickly um, because they were like, I don't know, a handful, like maybe 4,000 or 5,000 downloads before I corrected an audio mistake. And the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the music levels, um, the, the level adjustment that I have standard on my music track somehow got copied over to the read track after about like 20 minutes and so the read track was turned down really really low it was like negative 30 and at first i was just like oh god that sucks and you know i went and corrected it but then i found out that my headings track was not turned down low <laughs> so so Periodically, for the people who still listen to it by checking the volume way up, randomly got a section 15. So for everyone whose ears are bleeding because of the headings, uh, know that I am very sorry for that, but also slightly entertained that that happened. Um, I do feel bad. I do definitely feel bad. But we are going to get in. We're not going to do that on today's episode. We're going to make sure very... I have like five tracks on this thing because I, I want to make it easy to edit later. And I save all of this stuff so that I can edit out ads and cut uh, uh, versions of them without anything in them and, you know, that sort of stuff. It makes it easy for stuff later. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look very closely this time to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, so thank you for putting up with that for those who did. Uh, we are going to jump right into part five. We're going to conclude. We're going to do it today. We're going to conclude Alex Gladstein's incredible piece on how the IMF and World Bank repress poor countries. And we're going to do it just after we thank our wonderful sponsors. And who they is? They is Swan Bitcoin. The Bitcoinist Bitcoiners that there are. If you was trying to get into Bitcoin, the Bitcoin of the swan is the swan. It's the, is the Bitcoin that you're looking for. You, you get your butt right down to swanbitcoin.com slash guy. 
and you will find everything that you need. That is that is it. That is it. That is the whole list. All right there at swanbitcoin.com slash guy. And then by golly gosh darn, you're going to get yourself a full debit card and you're going to stack sats on all the things that you do throughout your day because fiat is trash, but you should get sats. I'm actually, actually, I forgot my wife is going to buy some stuff on Amazon. This, this is actually true. She's going to buy some stuff on Amazon and I need to get her an Amazon gift card because we don't use... We don't, we don't do anything else on Amazon with our cards anymore. We get gift cards off of Fold, which give us 5% back. And I give her the code, and then she buys the stuff on Amazon, and we get it. And it's like, that's a lot of sats at the end of the day. And you stupid SOB should definitely take advantage of that. And then when you get all of these sats, you know how to keep it safe. You just get yourself a cold card. CoinKite has the coldest of the cold storage and all of the hardware solutions. They got the cold card that fits right into your pocket. They got the tap signer that slides right into your wallet like any other card. It's real fancy. And then they got the open dimes that fit where the sun don't shine. They've literally got a solution for every place that you carry your things around in. And my name ain't Guy if you don't get a 5% discount for all the audionauts out there in the show notes. You look right down there in the show notes, and I promise you it'll be there. So check it out. Rad says it's cool, don't you, Rad? All right. With that, it is time to conclude Gladstein's amazing piece on the IMF and World Bank. Coming in on the section titled Part 15 The Human Toll of structural adjustment. To the World Bank, development means growth, but unrestrained growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. Mohammed Yunus. The social impact of structural adjustment is immense and barely ever gets mentioned in traditional analysis of the bank and funds policy. There have been plenty of exhaustive studies done on their economic impact, but very little comparatively on their global health impact. Researchers like Ayati, Hancock, and Payer give a few jarring examples from the 1970s and 1980s. Between 1977 and 1985, Peru undertook IMF structural adjustment. The average per capita income of Peruvians fell 20%, and inflation soared from 30% to 160%. By 1985, a worker's pay was only worth 64% of what it had been worth in 1979 and 44% of what it had been in 1973. Child malnutrition rose from 42% to 68% of the population. In 1984 and 1985, the Philippines under Marcos implemented yet another round of IMF structural reform. After one year... GNP per capita regressed to 1975 levels. Real earnings fell by 46% among urban wage earners. In Sri Lanka, the poorest 30% suffered an uninterrupted decline in calorie consumption after more than a decade of structural adjustment. In Brazil, the number of citizens suffering from malnutrition jumped from 27 million, one-third of the population, in 1961 to 86 million, two-thirds of the population, in 1985, after 10 doses of structural adjustment. 
between 1975 and 1984, in IMF-guided Bolivia, the number of hours the average citizen had to work to purchase a thousand calories of bread, beans, corn, wheat, sugar, potatoes, milk, or quinoa increased on average by five times. After structural adjustment in Jamaica in 1984, the nutritional purchasing power of one Jamaican dollar plummeted in 14 months from being able to buy 2,232 calories of flour to just 1,443, from 1,649 calories of rice to 905, from 1,037 calories of condensed milk to 508, and from 220 calories of chicken to 174. As a result of structural adjustment, Mexican real wages declined in the 1980s by more than 75%. In 1986, about 70% of lower-income Mexicans had, quote, virtually stopped eating rice, eggs, fruit, vegetables, and milk, never mind meat or fish, at a time when their government was paying $27 million per day, $18,750 per minute, in interest to its creditors. By the 1990s, a family of four on the minimum wage, which made up 60% of the employed labor force, could only buy 25% of its basic needs. In sub-Saharan Africa, GNP per capita, quote, dropped steadily from $624 in 1980 to $513 in 1998. Food production per capita in Africa was 105 in 1980, but 92 in 1997, and food imports rose an astonishing 65% between 1988 and 1997. These examples, though tragic, only give a small and patchwork picture of the deleterious impact that bank and fund policies have had on the health of the world's poor. On average, every year from 1980 to 1985, there were 47 countries in the third world pursuing IMF-sponsored structural adjustment programs and 21 developing countries pursuing structural or sector adjustment loans from the World Bank. During this same period, 75% of all countries in Latin America and Africa experienced declines in per capita income and child welfare. The decline in living standards makes sense when one considers that bank and fund policies sculpted societies to focus on exports at the expense of consumption while gutting food security and healthcare services. During IMF structural adjustment, real wages in countries like Kenya declined by more than 40%. After billions in bank and fund credit, per capita food production in Africa fell by nearly 20% between 1960 and 1994. Meanwhile, health expenditures in IMF World Bank programmed countries declined by 50% during the 1980s. When food security and health care collapse, people die. Papers from 2011 and 2013 showed that countries that took a structural adjustment loan had higher levels of child mortality than those that did not. A 2017 analysis was, quote, virtually unanimous in finding a detrimental association between structural adjustment and child and maternal health outcomes. 
A 2020 study reviewed data from 137 developing countries between 1980 and 2014 and found that, quote, structural adjustment reforms lower health system access and increase neonatal mortality. A paper from 2021 concluded that structural adjustment plays, quote, a significant role in perpetuating preventable disability and death. It is impossible to do a full accounting of just how many women, men, and children were killed as a result of bank and fund austerity policies. Food security advocate Davidson Badu claimed that 6 million children died each year in Africa, Asia, and Latin America between 1982 and 1994 as a result of structural adjustment. This would put the bank and fund's death toll in the same ballpark as deaths caused by Stalin and Mao. Is this remotely possible? No one will ever know. But by looking at the data, we can begin to get a sense. Research from Mexico, a typical country in terms of consistent involvement historically from the bank and fund, shows that for every 2% decrease in GDP, the mortality rate increased by 1%. Now consider that as a result of structural adjustment, the GDP of dozens of countries in the third world between the 1960s and 1990s suffered double-digit contractions. Despite massive population growth, many of these economies stagnated or shrank over 15 to 25-year periods, meaning the bank and the fund's policies likely killed tens of millions of people. Whatever the final death toll, there are two certainties. One, these are crimes against humanity. And two, no bank or fund officials will ever go to prison. There will never be any accountability or justice. The inescapable reality is that millions died too young in order to extend and improve the lives of millions elsewhere. It is, of course, true that much of the success of the West is because of the Enlightenment values like rule of law, free speech, liberal democracy, and domestic respect for human rights. But the unspoken truth is that much of the West's success is also the result of resource and time theft from poor countries. The stolen wealth and labor of the third world will go unpunished, but remains visible today, forever encrusted in the developed world's architecture, culture, science, technology, and quality of life. The next time one visits London, New York, Tokyo, Paris, Amsterdam, or Berlin, this author suggests going for a walk and pausing at a particularly impressive or scenic view of the city to reflect on this. As the old saying goes, we must pass through the darkness to reach the light. Part 16. A Trillion Dollars, The Bank and Fund in the Post-COVID World We are all in this together. Christine Lagarde, former IMF Managing Director Bank and fund policy towards developing countries has not changed much over the past few decades. Sure, there have been a few superficial tweaks, like the Highly Indebted Poor Countries or HIPC initiative, where some governments can qualify for debt relief. 
But underneath the new language, even these poorest of the poor countries still need to do structural adjustment. It's just been rebranded to Poverty Reduction Strategy. The same rules still apply. In Guyana, for example, quote, The government decided in early 2000 to increase the salaries of civil servants by 3.5%, after a fall in purchasing power of 30% over the previous five years. The IMF immediately threatened to remove Guyana from the new list of HIPCs. After a few months, the government had to backpedal. The same large-scale devastation still occurs. In a 2015 International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ, report, for instance, it was estimated that 3.4 million people were displaced in the previous decade by bank-funded projects. The old accounting games, meant to exaggerate the good done by assistance, are joined by new ones. The U.S. government applies a 92% discount to the debt of highly indebted poor countries, and yet U.S. authorities include the nominal value of the debt relief in their ODA, Official Development Assistance Numbers, meaning they significantly exaggerate the volume of their aid. The Financial Times has argued that it is, quote, the aid that isn't, and has argued that writing off official commercial debt should not count as aid. While it's true that there have actually been large transformations at the bank and fund in recent years, those changes have not been in the way that the institutions try to shape the economies of borrowing countries, but rather in that they have focused their efforts on nations closer to the world's economic core. By practically any metric, a NBER study observes, the post-2008 IMF programs to several European economies are the largest in the IMF's 70-year history. IMF commitments as a share of world GDP, the study explains, hit an all-time high as the European debt crisis began to unravel. Iceland began an IMF program in 2008, followed by Greece, Ireland, and Portugal. The IMF-led bailout of Greece was a staggering $375 billion. In July 2015, quote, Popular discontent led to a no vote in a referendum on whether to accept the IMF's loan conditions, which included raising taxes, lowering pensions and other spending, and privatizing industries. In the end, however, the Greek people's voice wasn't heard since the government subsequently ignored the results and accepted the loans. The fund used the same playbook in Greece and other lower-income European countries as it had used all over the developing world for decades, breaking democratic norms to provide billions to the elites with austerity for the masses. In the past two years, the bank and fund have pumped hundreds of billions of dollars into countries following government lockdowns and COVID-19 pandemic restrictions, more loans were given out in a shorter time than ever before. Even in late 2022, as interest rates continue to rise, the debt of poor countries keeps rising, and the amount they owe to rich countries keeps growing. History rhymes, and IMF visits to dozens of countries remind us of the early 1980s, when a massive debt bubble was popped by Federal Reserve policies. What followed was the worst depression in the third world since the 1930s. We can hope that this does not happen again,
But given the bank and the fund's efforts to load up poor countries with more debt than ever before, and given that the cost of borrowing is going up in a historic way, we can predict that it will happen again. And even where the bank and fund's influence shrinks, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is beginning to step in. In the past decade, China has tried to emulate the dynamics of the IMF and World Bank through its own development institutions and through its Belt and Road Initiative. As the Indian geostrategist Brahma Chalani writes, Through its $1 trillion, one belt, one road initiative, China is supporting infrastructure projects in strategically located developing countries, often by extending huge loans to their governments. As a result, countries are becoming ensnared in a debt trap that leaves them vulnerable to China's influence. The projects that China is supporting are often intended not to support the local economy, but to facilitate Chinese access to natural resources or to open the market for its low-cost and shoddy export goods. In many cases, China even sends its own construction workers, minimizing the number of local jobs that are created. The last thing the world needs is another bank and fund drain dynamic. Only pulling resources from poor countries to go to the genocidal dictatorship in Beijing. So it is good to see the CCP having trouble in this area. It is trying to grow its Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank by more than $10 billion per year, but it is encountering a variety of issues with projects that it financed across the developing world. Some governments, like in Sri Lanka, simply cannot pay back. Since the CCP cannot mint the world reserve currency, it actually has to eat the loss. Because of this, it won't likely be able to come anywhere close to approximating the lending volume of the U.S.-Europe-Japan-led system. Which is certainly a good thing. CCP loans may not come with onerous structural adjustment conditions, but they certainly don't have any considerations for human rights. In fact, the CCP helped shield one Belt and Road client, Sri Lankan President Mahinda Rajapaksha, from war crimes allegations at the UN. Looking at its projects in Southeast Asia, where it is depleting Burmese minerals and timber and eroding Pakistani sovereignty, and Sub-Saharan Africa, where it is extracting an enormous amount of rare earths, it largely amounts to the same kind of resource theft and geopolitical control tactics practiced by colonial powers for centuries, just dressed up in a new kind of clothing. It's not clear that the bank and fund even view the CCP as a bad actor. After all, Wall Street and Silicon Valley tend to be quite friendly with the world's worst dictators. China remains a creditor at the bank and fund. Its membership has never been in question, despite the genocide of the Uyghur people. As long as the CCP does not get in the way of the big picture goals, the bank and fund probably won't mind. There's enough loot to go around. Part 17. From Arusha to Accra. Those who wield power control money. Arusha Delegates, 1979. In 1979, developing nations gathered in the Tanzanian city of Arusha to devise an alternative plan to the IMF and World Bank-led structural adjustment that had left them with mountains of debt and very little say as to the future of the world economy. Those who wield power control money, the delegates wrote. Those who manage and control money wield power. An international monetary system is both a function and an instrument of prevailing power structures. 
As Stefan Eich writes in The Currency of Politics, quote, The Arusha Initiative's emphasis on the international monetary system's burden of hierarchical imbalances was a powerful attempt to insist on money's political nature by countering claims to neutral technical expertise asserted by the fund's money doctors. The IMF may have claimed a neutral, objective, scientific stance, Ike writes, but all scholarly evidence, including the fund's international documentation, pointed the other way. The fund was, in fact, deeply ideological in the way it framed underdevelopment as a lack of private markets, but systematically applied double standards in ignoring similar market controls in developed countries. This resonates with what Cheryl Payer observed, that bank and fund economists, quote, erected a mystique around their subject which intimidated even other economists. They represent themselves, she said, as highly trained technicians who determine the correct exchange rate and proper amount of money creation on the basis of complex formulas. They deny the political significance of their work. Like most of the leftist discourse on the bank and fund, the criticisms made at Arusha were mostly on target. The institutions were exploitative and enriched their creditors at the expense of poor countries. But Arusha's solutions missed the mark. Central planning, social engineering, and nationalization. The Arusha delegates advocated for the bank and fund to be abolished and for odious debts to be cancelled, perhaps noble but entirely unrealistic goals. Beyond that, their best plan of action was, quote, shift power into the hands of local governments, a poor solution given that the vast majority of third world countries were dictatorships. For decades, the public in developing countries suffered as their leaders wavered between selling out their country to multinational corporations and socialist authoritarianism. Both options were destructive. This is the trap that Ghana has found itself in since independence from the British Empire. More often than not, the Ghanaian authorities, regardless of ideology, chose the option of borrowing from abroad. Ghana has a stereotypical history with the bank and fund. Military leaders seizing power by coup only to impose IMF structural adjustment. Real wages dropping between 1971 and 1982 by 82% with public health spending shrinking 90% and meat prices up 400% during the same time, borrowing to build enormous white elephant projects like the Akasambo Dam, which powered a U.S.-owned aluminum plant at the expense of more than 150,000 people who contracted river blindness and paralysis from the creation of the world's largest man-made lake, and a depletion of 75% of the country's rainforests as timber, cocoa, and minerals industries boomed while domestic food production cratered. $2.2 billion of assistance flowed into Ghana in 2022, but the debt stands at an all-time high of $31 billion, up from $750 million 50 years ago. Since 1982, under IMF guidance, the Ghanaian Sadi was devalued by 38,000%. One of the biggest outcomes of structural adjustment has been, like elsewhere around the world, expedition of the extraction of Ghana's natural resources. Between 1990 and 2002, for example, 
the government only received $87.3 million from the $5.2 billion worth of gold mined out of Ghanaian soil. In other words, 98.4% of the profits from gold mining in Ghana went to foreigners. As Ghanaian protester Lyle Pratt says, The IMF is not here to bring down prices. They are not here to ensure that we construct roads. It is not their business and they simply don't care. The IMF's primary concern is to make sure that we build the capacity to pay our loans, not to develop. 2022 feels like a rerun. The Ghanaian Sadi has been one of the world's worst performing currencies this year, losing 48.5% of its value since January. The country is facing a debt crisis, and like in decades past, is forced to prioritize paying back its creditors over investing in its own people. In October, just a few weeks ago, the country received its latest IMF visit. If a loan is finalized, it would be the 17th IMF loan for Ghana since the CIA-backed military coup of 1966. That is 17 layers of structural adjustment. A visit from the IMF is a bit like a visit from the Grim Reaper. It can only mean one thing, more austerity, pain, and without exaggeration, death. Perhaps the wealthy and well-connected can escape unscathed, or even enriched, but for the poor and working classes, the currency devaluation, rising interest rates, and disappearance of bank credit is devastating. This is not the Ghana of 1973 that Cheryl Payer first wrote about in The Debt Trap. It is 50 years later, and the trap is 40 times deeper. But, perhaps there is a glimmer of hope. On December 5th to 7th, 2022, in the Ghanaian capital of Accra, there will be a different kind of visit. Instead of creditors looking to charge interest on the people of Ghana and dictate their industries, the speakers and organizers of the Africa Bitcoin Conference are gathering to share information, open-source tools, and decentralizing tactics on how to build economic activity beyond the control of corrupt governments and foreign multinational corporations. Farida Nabarema is the lead organizer. She is pro-democracy, pro-poor, anti-bank and fund, anti-authoritarian, and pro-Bitcoin. The real issue, Cheryl Payer once wrote, is who controls the capital and technology that is exported to the poorer countries. One can argue that Bitcoin as capital and technology is being exported to Ghana and Togo. It certainly didn't arise there. But it's not clear where it arose. No one knows who created it, and no government or corporation can control it. During the gold standard, the violence of colonialism corrupted a neutral monetary standard. In the post-colonial world, a fiat monetary standard upheld by the bank and fund corrupted a post-colonial power structure. For the third world, perhaps a post-colonial, post-fiat world will be the right mix. Proponents of dependency theory like Samir Amin gather at conferences like Arusha and called for a delinking of poor countries from rich ones. The idea was, 
the wealth of rich countries was not just attributable to their liberal democracies, property rights, and entrepreneurial environments, but also to their resource and labor theft from poor countries. Sever that drain, and poor countries could get a leg up. Amin predicted that the construction of a system beyond capitalism will have to begin in the peripheral areas. If we agree with Alan Farrington that today's fiat system is not capitalism, and that the current dollar system is deeply flawed, then perhaps Amin was right. A new system is more likely to emerge in Accra, not Washington or London. As Seferin Amus writes, The developing world consists of countries that had not yet adopted modern industrial technologies by the time an inflationary global monetary system began replacing a relatively sound one in 1914. This dysfunctional global monetary system continuously compromised these countries' development by enabling local and foreign governments to expropriate the wealth produced by their people. In other words, rich countries got industrialized before they got fiat. Poor countries got fiat before they got industrialized. The only way to break the cycle of dependency, according to Nabarema and other organizers of the Africa Bitcoin Conference, might be to transcend fiat. Part 18. A Glimmer of Hope The root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. Satoshi Nakamoto Whatever the answer is to poverty in the third world, we know it is not more debt. The poor of the world, Cheryl Payer concludes, don't need another bank. However benign, they need decently paid work, responsive government, civil rights, and national autonomy. For seven decades, the World Bank and IMF have been enemies of all four. Looking forward, says Payer, the most important task for those in the wealthy countries who are concerned with international solidarity is to actively fight to end the flow of foreign aid. The problem is that the current system is designed and incentivized to keep this flow going. The only way to make a change is through a total paradigm shift. We already know that Bitcoin can help individuals inside developing countries gain personal financial freedom and escape the broken systems imposed on them by their corrupt rulers and international financial institutions. This is what will be accelerated in Accra next month, contra the designs of the bank and fund. But can Bitcoin actually change the core periphery dynamics of the world's power and resource structure? Nabarema is hopeful and doesn't understand why leftists in general condemn or ignore Bitcoin. A tool that is capable of allowing people to build and access wealth independent from institutions of control can be seen as a leftist project, she says. As an activist that believes citizens should be paid in currencies that actually value their life and sacrifices, Bitcoin is a people's revolution. I find it painful, she says, that a farmer in sub-Saharan Africa only earns 1% of the price of coffee on the global market, if we can get to a stage where farmers can sell their coffee without so many middle institutions more directly to the buyers and get paid in Bitcoin, 
you could imagine how much of a difference that would make in their lives. Today, she says, our countries in the global south still borrow money in U.S. dollars, but over time our currencies depreciate and lose value, and we end up having to make twice or three times the payment we initially promised in order to reimburse our creditors. Now imagine, she says, if we get to a stage in 10 or 20 years where Bitcoin is the global money that is accepted for business worldwide, where every nation has to borrow in Bitcoin and spend Bitcoin, and every nation has to pay their debts in Bitcoin. In that world, then foreign governments cannot demand that we repay them in currencies that we need to earn, but that they can simply print. And just because they decide to increase their interest rates, it won't automatically jeopardize the lives of millions or billions of people in our countries. Of course, Nabarema says. Bitcoin is going to come with issues like any innovation. But the beauty is that those issues can be improved with peaceful, global collaboration. No one knew 20 years ago what amazing things the Internet allows us to do today. No one can tell you what amazing things Bitcoin will allow us to do in 20 years. The way forward, she says, is an awakening of the masses, for them to understand the ins and outs of how the system works and to understand that there are alternatives. We have to be in a position where people can reclaim their liberty, where their lives aren't controlled by authorities that can confiscate their freedom at any time without consequences. Gradually, we are getting closer to this goal with Bitcoin. Since money is the center of everything in our world, Nabarema says, the fact that we are now able to obtain financial independence is so important for people in our countries, as we seek to reclaim our rights in every field and sector. In an interview for this article, deflation advocate Jeff Booth explains that as the world approaches a Bitcoin standard, the bank and fund will be less likely to be creditors and more likely to be co-investors, partners, or simply grantors. As prices fall over time, this means debt gets more expensive and more difficult to repay. And with the U.S. money printer turned off, there will be no more bailouts. At first, he suggests the bank and fund will try to continue to lend. But for the first time, they'll actually lose big chunks of money as countries freely default as they move onto a Bitcoin standard. So they may consider co-investing instead, where they might become more interested in the real success and sustainability of the projects they support as the risk is more equally shared. Bitcoin mining is an additional area of potential change. If poor countries can exchange their natural resources for money without dealing with foreign powers, then maybe their sovereignty can strengthen instead of erode. Through mining, the vast amounts of river power, hydrocarbons, sun, wind, ground warmth, and offshore OTEC in emerging markets could be converted directly to the world reserve currency without permission. This has never before been possible. The debt trap seems truly inescapable for most poor countries, continuing to grow every year. Maybe investing in anti-fiat Bitcoin reserves, services, and infrastructure is a way out and a path to striking back. Bitcoin, Booth says, can short-circuit the old system that has subsidized wealthy countries at the expense of wages in poor countries. 
In that old system, the periphery had to be sacrificed to protect the core. In the new system, the periphery and core can work together. Right now, he says, the U.S. dollar system keeps people poor through wage deflation in the periphery. But by equalizing the money and creating a neutral standard for everyone, a different dynamic is created. With one monetary standard, labor rates would be necessarily pulled closer together instead of kept apart. We don't have words for such a dynamic, Booth says, because it has never existed. He suggests forced cooperation. Booth describes the U.S. ability to instantly issue any amount of more debt as theft in base money. Readers may be familiar with the Cantillon effect, where those who are closest to the money printer benefit from fresh cash while those farthest away suffer. Well, it turns out there is a global Cantillon effect, too, where the U.S. benefits from issuing the global reserve currency and poor countries suffer. A Bitcoin standard, Booth says, ends this. How much of the world's debt is odious? There are trillions of dollars of loans created at the whim of dictators and unelected supranational financial institutions, with zero consent from the people on the borrowing side of the deal. The moral thing to do would be to cancel this debt. But of course, that will never happen because the loans exist ultimately as assets on the balance sheets of the creditors of the bank and the fund. They will always prefer to keep the assets and simply create new debt to pay the old. The IMF, quote, put on sovereign debt creates the biggest bubble of all. Bigger than the dot-com bubble, bigger than the subprime mortgage bubble, and bigger even than the stimulus-powered COVID bubble. Unwinding this system will be extremely painful, but it's the right thing to do. If debt is the drug, and the bank and fund are the dealers, and the developing country governments are the addicts, then it's unlikely either party will want to stop. But to heal, the addicts need to go to rehab. The fiat system makes this basically impossible. In the Bitcoin system, it may get to the point where the patient has no other choice. As Seyfedin Amus says in an interview for this article, Today, if Brazil's rulers wanted to borrow $30 billion and the U.S. Congress agrees, America can snap its fingers and allocate the funds through the IMF. It's a political decision. But he says, if we get rid of the money printer, then these decisions become less political and start to resemble the more prudent decision-making of a bank that knows no bailout will ever come. In the last 60 years of bank and fund dominance, countless tyrants and kleptocrats were bailed out against any financial common sense so that their nation's natural resources and labor could continue to be exploited by core countries. This was possible because the government at the very heart of the system could print the reserve currency. But in a Bitcoin standard, Amus wonders, who is going to make these high-risk, billion-dollar loans in exchange for structural adjustment? You, he asks, and whose Bitcoins? This is a guest post by Alex Gladstein. Opinions expressed are entirely their own and do not necessarily reflect those of BTC Incorporated, 
or Bitcoin Magazine. Well, holy crap. We did it. I think that was two weeks. <laughs> Granted, there was like a huge gap of just me not being able to get anything done. But still, that was, that was a hell of a read. Now, uh, like I said, I'm going to do a guy's take on this. I think tomorrow's episode, if you want to listen back through this entire thing, uh, I'm going to have this published essentially as an audiobook with just a standard intro. Um, I mean, like, not the show, but a standard, like, you know, this is blah, blah, blah by Alex Gladstein, read by Guy Swan. So you'll have the entire thing from start to finish, no breaks. If you want to listen back through it, I am actually going to listen back through it uh, probably a couple of times in preparation for the guy's take because there's just so, so, so much to unpack. Um, and I've got another whole set of notes from this section. One of my favorite things, I think, from this section, actually, one of my favorite things from this entire piece, um, just in trying to, if, if you wanted to conceptualize and just summarize in the, uh, the clearest of words exactly what is happening and the consequences, if, of course, you understand the consequences of fiat money. Um, but it was, Saifedean had a really good quote, which was an entire paragraph, but then Alex Gladstein reiterated and explained what Saifedean was basically detailing out in this. And the quote was, rich countries got industrialized before they got fiat. Poor countries got fiat before they got industrialized. Now, I just thought this was such a clean hitting line. And this is the this is essentially the summary or the rephrase that Gladstein did in uh in response to Saifedean's section. Um that's where he's just talking about how developing countries never got to the modern industrial technology and infrastructure, never did those huge foundational investments before they got roped into an inflationary mobile, uh, inflationary global monetary system. And this essentially disables their ability to have, to, to have sustained growth. It's, it's this, it, it essentially causes this feedback loop where they get siphoned because the capital that gets invested isn't real capital. And I don't mean that like buildings aren't actually made or roads aren't actually paved. I mean it in the sense that it is literally borrowed. So you don't owe, yes, there is a road built, but they owe a road plus interest in return to the foreign investor who created the money out of thin air. Ultimately, the value got created out of thin air, which means it just got confiscated probably from the poor country. So the poor country paid the cost of the land, they paid the cost to pave the road, and they owe the road and interest to the country that owns the road because they created the debt to get it done. Sound money is the most important thing for the protection of property rights and free markets. You know, they talk about like, Oh, well, it's the lack of property rights, it's the lack of free markets, it's the lack of stable government and rules, it's the last lack of respect for, you know, each other's um, individualism and, you know, individual choices and free speech and these things that cause these countries to be poor. Well, you're forcing them into a fiat system that is the absolute destruction of property rights and free markets. And at, previously, to the industrialized nations, to the modern 
or the Western world that got to industrialize on a gold standard prior to, you know, 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created and it was basically set in stone. The, the death of the sound monetary system was set in stone and then we watched it play out over the next 20 to 30 years in, you know, the consequence of two world wars. Which, for anybody who doesn't know and, you know, isn't familiar with the stuff we've dug into, the world wars were currency wars. They were the collapse of monetary systems, the collapse and shift in monetary systems. So that's a fun little rabbit hole to go down if you haven't done that. But that foundation of, uh, the, of the industrialization that occurred during the sound monetary standard um, is that foundation is what enabled the productive capacity and the base capital to keep things going. Because at the end of the day, even with, you know, when a, when a currency gets like massively devalued, understand that the collapse that, that comes from that is a communication collapse, is an inability to communicate things of value. The structures don't go away. The machines don't go away. The systems and processes that enable those structures to be productive, that enable us to repair and maintain those machines, those things fall apart because those processes require communication, and the communication of economic value requires sound money. However, productive capacity and capital in the country backs the value of a sound currency. It backs the value of currency. And it's what enabled, essentially, especially after you know, World War II and we had Bretton Woods and all of, this, all of these things, is that it essentially bolstered and the fact that the United States had the freest market and then a lot of other kind of circumstantial things about you know, being an ocean away from its, all of its main enemies and basically a, uh, a plethora of incredibly lucky um, uh, characteristics and um, uh, traits of the United States in general, from a geopolitical standpoint, enabled it to be the productive power. Um, and the sound money and property rights that, and the and the respect for individualism that the United States did once have, um, made it the most unbelievably productive, creative, and innovative, and quickly adapting. You, you know, people forget that. Like the, the purpose of the market is adaptation, is that the environment is constantly changing. Everything, the technological environment is constantly changing. The actual environment is constantly changing. The illusion that, you know, somehow the economy is about jobs or whatever is just, is, is actually a product of a, of exactly what occurred in the 19, in the 19 teens and uh, post that where the fiat standard essentially began to kill the entrepreneurial uh, part of the economy. And it, it began to put up walled gardens between successful business and consumers. They, it, it sort of separated these things out. And suddenly, and then with the continuation, like this, this culture kind of fed back on itself. And then there were the social safety nets and all of these things. And suddenly, it's just this given thing it becomes inherent to the culture that you're supposed to get a job that you're supposed to get a job and success just have a good job but the question is like what is a job like like we've com become so completely disconnected from the meaning of what we're actually doing is that you're supposed to produce you're supposed to create things of value and trade with people that's not a job a job a job is just a way to have someone else take all of the risk and all of the actual actions 
and process of the creation and then give you some menial task to just fulfill along the way. Now, a job has a very important role. It's the exchange of that risk and it's the exchange of risk for a stable and predictable income. But it should not replace. It should not become the standard. It should not become the one and only thing. And it certainly shouldn't be the job or the the point of an economy to create jobs. The point of an economy is to be robust, productive, and adaptable. Because if it If all we do is focus on how to create giant systems with stable jobs, we've created something that can adapt to shit. And if anything foundationally changes, if any technology comes in and really screws with things, if any like major political or environmental or just shift in the world and the way we think and the knowledge that we understand and and the things that we know about our world change, something as subtle as a piece of knowledge could come into our scope our, our, our meme pool, uh, the scope of, you know, the human, uh, the human intellect, and completely just screw everything up. And if we don't have the agility to adapt, if we don't have people who have an entrepreneurial spirit, if we have people who are just thinking that they're going to run a single job for the rest of their lives, like think about people 30 or 40 years ago. What job 30, 40 year, 30 or 40 years ago is still reliable today? Is still static? Is still like what... We don't live in that world anymore. That was the world of the 1800s. That was the world at best of like the 1940s and 50s when you could actually expect to retire doing the same thing. You can't do that shit anymore. Five, ten years, you can't expect to have the same job. You can't expect to be doing the same things and getting a reliable, legitimate pay. You're going to be replaced. You have to be adaptable. Evolution is adaptation. It's about being the... One who can respond to the external stimuli. You know, I don't remember where I read this. Uh, this might be in Sapiens, maybe? I, I don't know. Um, but it was Charles Darwin, you know, that people have this illusion that it's like this. Only the evolution is about only the strong survive. And that's not true. Um, like, like, it gives the illusion, and I think there's this popular concept that it's about being big and being able to control and like stomp on other people essentially and that this is success and i think it's kind of a kind of a nihilistic like oh only only the bad people succeed and that's not how evolution works and charles darwin made it very clear that it's it's about adaptation it's the it's the the it's the survival of the fittest and the fittest are the ones who can change to their environment and that is the purpose of a free market that is what property rights enable us to do and sound money enables us to do because it enables that communication so that we can understand what adaptation is needed if we don't have that if we don't have sound money it all falls apart the poor countries of the world the third world and the underdeveloped world got forced into a fiat system before they got any productive foundational infrastructure to build out a capital and an entrepreneurial environment and a system of property rights and individual rights that in that allowed the markets to actually bring them into the modern world. They never got it. They never got it. And as much as it's been trying desperately trying to integrate 
and trying to take advantage of it, it's being siphoned away. It's being siphoned away faster than they can actually grasp a hold of anything that is static, that, that is foundational, that can stay put and can, can, can maintain that communication and enable that trade to continue efficiently and successfully. Like, like actual accurate information being transmitted through the market about the environment, about their system, about their economy, so that they can build out their foundation, so that they can actually industrialize and come into the modern world. And even trying so many new technologies they've been able to actually adopt, like with the cell phones and uh, being able to skip, you know, 80 years, 100 years of landlines and dial up and cable and all of these things and jump straight to wireless because it's such a order of magnitude, lower cost and uh, higher benefit in network connectivity. Like the amount, the, the degree that these people are trying desperately to get out from under this thing. But it's like this huge weight that every single time, the harder they struggle, it's like quicksand. The harder you struggle, the heavier it gets, the more you sink. But that's the thing, is that they only need a little bit. They only need a little bit of help to, to just turn, turn the imbalance onto the other side. You know, I, I talk about this, and, and I talked about this also in the, when we covered like the sovereign individual and numerous reads that we've done about this is that the agricultural revolution, you know, some 5,000, 10,000 years ago, whatever, um, shift, shifted the economics of violence such that you could have sustained violent ownership or enslavement of a people. It essentially enabled the creation of governments and mafias because... When your value, when your wealth is static, you you can't take your wealth with you. It makes more sense. So the the prime example, I think, is roughly they said in the Sovereign Individual book, was that when you're a hunter-gatherer, you take all your wealth with you on your back. So if a group of you know thugs come with sticks and you know chains, and they're like, "Uh, we're you're gonna give us twenty percent of what you own," well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna get all your stuff on your back, and you're gonna peace out. You're just going to leave. Um, and now, after the uh, agricultural revolution, now you've got a huge plot of land. Now you've got a house. Now you've got oxen. Now you've plowed this land. Now you've got seed that you're, that's germinating and, and plants that are growing and you're waiting to actually harvest You know, next season. Now the same thugs come by and they say, I want 20% of what you own. What can you take with you? What can you, you lose 98% of what you own by leaving. So it's actually economically viable for you to take, to lose 20% in order to keep the other 80, in order to stay where you are. And it's also, it becomes profitable for the mafia to continue to do this, to do this for everyone, to basically scale their mafia, push out all of the competing mafias, and then legitimize their operation and call themselves government. But as our value becomes more and more ephemeral, more abstract, and more global, slowly that power is falling away. That margin of profit for violent control of other people is falling and every decentralizing technology does this. Everything that gives more power, gives greater power to the individual at the expense of scale, 
is that which raises the cost of violence and lowers the potential reward. And it doesn't have to be, understand that like the, the rise of mafia, the feedback loop of the mafia and the government institutions from a you know, 20% return on violence would happen with even just a half a percent return, just a 1% return. The return doesn't have to be much. It simply has to scale. It simply has to get bigger the bigger your institution and the bigger your scale of violence becomes. And then it will continue to scale until it reaches its ultimate end, the, the largest system of violence that it can possibly be. But in the same way, the marginal loss of violent control and enslavement does not have to be big to inevitably, with an, on a long enough time frame, to end those same institutions of control, to end those same mechanisms of mafioso uh, design. It can just be a half a percent loss, just a one percent loss, where there is a negative feedback loop, where the bigger your violence gets and the larger you scale it, the harder it is to tell who's trying to get out from under your thumb. And there's a part of me that, you know, wonders if there is just this serendipity or it's just kind of the nature of things and how, how technology and these things shift as pressure builds. You know, you know, evolution is a consequence of stimulation. It's a consequence of stimulus in the environment. It is, it is when things get bad that the mutations are forced, that the mutations basically run wild because there is pressure on the species, because there is pressure on the environment and the organisms within it in order to change. It's forcing them. And essentially in an era of the highest, most expansive global surveillance, violent institutions of control, you're also seeing one of the strongest pushes to decentralization and undermining that control, essentially in tandem. And the more global that system is, the less granular power they have over the individual people. And the easier it will be for small totems, small galts gulches to appear all around the world where people are just slowly getting out from underneath where these poor countries and the third world and the global south can begin to, to stake little totems, little foundations of property rights, of true economic and monetary communication that actually have connections to the entire rest of the world, connections that can't be shut off, connections that are easy and cheap to establish with cryptography that's infinitely like in, requires infinite resources essentially to break through and where each person has to be attacked individually such that the, the task of trying to control a massive population is no longer just the task of getting a big group and getting that population to fear them because you can easily control the land, you can easily control the houses, but now it's 
requiring individual specific control of every single person under your system of authority because anyone can have a billion dollars in their brain and walk naked across any border on the planet, any imaginary mafioso line that says you can't own anything past where I say and they can walk across it and nobody can stop them and they can take that hundred dollars, million dollars, a billion dollars with them. It is the true freeing of capital and the true globalization of capital. And I think it's going to free the West in the, at the exact same time it's going to free the third world. And I don't know what the time frame is of this, but all it has to do is survive. The establishment of a global, the establishment and persistence of a global, secure, censorship-resistant, sovereignly-owned held and transferred digital money is we we have no idea no possible idea what this is going to what the world is going to look like post bitcoin and jesus after reading this piece this extensive incredible piece by alex gladstein just hats off to you man seriously is there anything more important? I don't know. I don't know. It just seems... Seems crazy. Seems crazy that this mess has persisted as long as it has. Almost unnoticed, like untalked about. It's so... Just messed up. But there is hope there is hope. Not only is it reaching its logical conclusion because the fiat currencies are running to the end of their debt trap, but at the exact same time, at the exact same time, there is a door that has just opened to let people out. And I don't know, that has me that has me really, really hopeful for the future. So, yeah, we'll close it here. Um, I got a lot of, uh, I got a lot more to cover on this. Like I said, I got like 1,800 just quotes. I've, I've quoted half the article for a guy's take, so it won't be the most efficient. But we'll get to it here. Um, but it won't be until the new year. I've got a lot of things to get through before I come back around. Uh, but uh, that's why I'm going to publish this all is its own entire piece, um, uh, no interruptions, and uh, uh, and it'll be good for us to go through it uh, extensively. I'll be going through it multiple times to uh, kind of flesh out all of my thoughts on it and make sure I don't miss any good uh, good key pieces that Gladstein and all the rest, all the other people involved in this piece um, shared. So. Uh, with that, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, I will have another episode out for tomorrow. And, wait, what is today? Is today Thursday? Yeah. Uh, I, I hope to have a couple more episodes out. I'm going to try to get some recording done tomorrow, aside from just having this read out. Um, and Green Eggs and Ham is coming as a single piece as well. Um, that's probably a good one to refresh. I really love that piece. I'm always a big fan of Big Al and Alan Farrington's work. So stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, a shout out to Swan Bitcoin 
for the best Bitcoin onboarding experience. Uh, and I just at the very last minute am doing my tax loss harvesting thing uh, that they have uh, advised, which is really, really great. And a thank you to CoinKite for their amazing Bitcoin hardware and security products. And also just their fun stuff like the Block Clock Mini and Micro and all that stuff. And then the Fold Card, the debit card that gets me sats back on everything in life. I'm going to be paying off a bunch of credit cards for Christmas very soon. And I'm going to do it all through the Fold Card and it's going to be glorious. I'm going to get sats back on all of it. I'm doubling sats back on so many different things. It's going to be so, it's going to be so great. I love the Fold Card. And thank you guys so much for listening. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. There can be no truly moral choice unless that choice is made in freedom. Murray Rothbard Touching the mic Is it is it is it fluffy? I just I headbutted the mic. It's it was very important for me to I just got the inclination and I went for it. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.